Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. Want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome you back, everyone. Thanks for being here as we are continuing our study. We're really finishing last week's conversation, but which was, I thought, excellent myself. A uh, good conversation and, and the topic. And then we're going to pick up from there. But let's, let me remind ourselves what, where we've been what we've been discussing and the point of this conversation. We've discussed the fact that the kingdom of God is, has come in Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And in the coming of the spirit, God's kingdom has begun. Now we live in this time between, right? This time where the kingdoms of the world still are, and the kingdom of God is also present. And the point of that then is, is okay, well, what are we supposed to be doing in this meantime? And so often in American evangelical Christianity that many of us have become familiar with, it's this idea that, well, okay, I'm saved and I get to go away somewhere someday when I die. And then in the meantime, I just kind of sit back and relax and take it easy. And it's like, no, God actually is building his kingdom. And the point that we've been making the last few weeks is that he builds his kingdom through us. He chooses his people to do the work of his kingdom. So we started last week with Exodus chapter two and chapter, well, one, two, and three. And then we worked under the Emmanuel principle. And the point of the passage in, in Exodus was that here, the people of Israel were, were being obedient to the will of God. They were being fruitful and multiply and, uh, and multiplying. And then of course, Pharaoh says, oh, not going to work here. This is going to be a threat to me. And that's a point that I kind of want to have us hanging on, that when the people of God are doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's a threat to the powers that be. And that's one of the reasons why suffering is an essential component of the kingdom of God, because it's a threat. It's a, it's a threat to the powers of, of the world. They, they don't want to be undermined. So then what happens is the people of Israel, their cry goes up before God, and God heard their cry, last three verses of, Gen- of Exodus chapter 2. God hears their cry. And then Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses at a burning bush. And when we do our devotional studies and you read one chapter at a time and you stop at the end of chapter two and the next day you pick up chapter three, you might not notice the, the connection there. But the connection is God heard their cry. Hey, Moses, get over here. And that's the point that we want to make now. And that is when God does the work of his kingdom, he calls us to be the agents of his kingdom, uh, whether it's first Peter chapter two, verse nine or elsewhere that we, we, we might go. So that's kind of the point we want to make. And then what we went to last week was the Emmanuel principle. And can anybody remember what that principle is, what it means, and kind of review for us a little bit what we talked about last week with the Emmanuel principle? He is with us. Yeah. God is with us. God, I mean, yeah, very good. God is with us. And the point of that was that this is the goal of creation. The goal of creation is for God to dwell amongst his people. Thus, thus he creates Adam and Eve and he brings them into the garden and God walked with them in the cool of the day, Genesis chapter three, verse eight. All right. So then we looked at Leviticus 26, 11, which is the top, the first reference on your, on your notes. Leviticus 26, 11 to 13. And that was one of the blessing passages. Remember the blessings and the curses. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. And the curse is specifically, you're going to get kicked out of the land, family and land, land and family, land and family, land and family. And so if you don't obey, you're going to get kicked out of the land. If you do obey, I'm going to bring you into the, I'm going to bring you into my presence. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And it's going to be awesome. 
the goal ultimately is you're going to be a light in the nations. That's where we want to get to now. Then we looked at, from there, we went to the, well, I think the last verse or last set of verse. Oh, actually, we went to the Ezekiel passage. And Ezekiel, which is written, you know, I don't know, 600, 800 years later, however, whenever you want to date these books. And what's happening with Ezekiel now is, in the book of Leviticus, they were promised, if you do these things, that's going to be awesome. And if you don't, I'm going to kick you out of the land. And Ezekiel is, is like, hey, we've been kicked out of the land. Now, so Ezekiel writes from Babylon. And you can't underemphasize how, how incredibly uh, traumatic the Babylonian exile was for the people of Israel. And now mind you, this, the Assyrian empire had already conquered the Northern kingdom, but the Babylonian exile for the Southern kingdom, like this is it, we're done. Everything we have and everything, the promise that, that God has given to us as a people, they're over with because the whole point of it was God was going to give us this land. And God's like, yeah, I'm going to give you that land because I'm going to dwell among you. And if, if you're not obedient, I'm kicking you out. But in the ancient world, the idea of that would be, well, that means our God's not all powerful. We thought he was not only the God of the, the God of the Israelites, but we thought it was the God of all the nations too. But clearly the Babylonian God's more powerful than our God because the Babylonians conquered us. And here we live in Babylon. Now, one unique thing here really quickly, and we might have discussed this in our Daniel study for those who were with us last year when we did that, is the people of, of Judah, the Southern kingdom, the people of what we call Judah, when they were taken to Babylon, they actually remained a distinct entity because they lived in one little suburb as a part of Babylon. They never got assimilated in the Babylonian culture or Babylonian people. They didn't intermarry with the Babylonians. They stayed Israelites living on the border of Babylon. And so what happens in the book of Ezekiel then is this traumatic moment, like, oh no, we've lost everything and all of our promises are dashed. Now we're slaves in Babylon. This is not going to be any good. And Ezekiel comes along and says, no, guess what? Ezekiel 37 that we looked at, it's on the notes, verses 23 through 28. And Ezekiel says, actually, God's going to bring you back and he's going to restore you. And he's going to put a David, a Davidic king on the throne and he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom, and it's going to be awesome, and I will be your God, and you'll be my people. And this quoting of the, the, book, the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus then is, I'm going to bring back the conditions of Eden among you here in this land. But they disobey and they get kicked out. Ezekiel comes along and says, oh, but God's not forgotten his promises. He's going to bring us back, and he's going to restore this Edenic conditions. And if you look at Ezekiel 36, You'll see the word Eden actually there at the last couple of verses of, of the text. Then we went to the, the book of Revelation and we looked at Revelation 21, 3 and Revelation 21, 7, which quotes Ezekiel. It's kind of a mix of Ezekiel and, and Leviticus language kind of merged together because it kind of just became one type of language. And the book of Re Revelation says, the Holy City in New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and I will dwell among you. And I'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. There'll be no more mourning or crying or, or death or pain. And you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And you're like, whoa, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise in Leviticus is in the new Jerusalem. And what I said at the end of last week was I said, that's where most Christians stop as they think, oh, okay. The promise was that God would dwell among his people. That was going to happen with the Israelites in the land of Israel, but they didn't obey. He kicked them out. Ezekiel makes this promise that's going to be even better, but the fulfillment's not until the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes back. And in the meantime, we just sit back and kick back and go, okay, cool. I'll just be a good person until then. Second Corinthians six, verse six. 
where Paul quotes both Ezekiel and Leviticus and says, you are the temple of the living God. As it is written, I will be your God and you'll be my people and I will dwell among you. And Paul's saying this is true now. And so this is the essence of the biblical story. And to summarize, then we're going to move on. This is the essence of the biblical story. And the biblical story is that God's going to create his creation and then dwell among his people, right? And he creates us to be the image bearers of his presence, but we're going to dwell within his presence. Adam and Eve were expelled from that presence. And you see the biblical story actually of this. Okay, I'm going to call you into my presence. So Adam and Eve are brought into God's presence. Remember, Adam and Eve were not created in Eden. They were created outside of Eden, then brought into Eden where God dwelt. And then they sin, so God kicks them out. Then God calls, calls Abraham. Here's the deal, Abraham. You're going to be the, the fulfillment of the promise. You come to the land that I will show you. And then eventually he expels the people. And then he brings his life back into the land, right? With, after they come out of Egypt, they come into the land. Okay, great. And then he expels them again. It's this story of, of, of coming into God's presence and being re restored and redeemed and then being sent out into exile. And then Jesus comes about, and if you've been listening to the podcast that we've been doing, especially on, on the Ma Gospel of Matthew, we talked about this a lot in terms of the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus comes in then and relives the story of Israel. The early chapters of Matthew is Jesus going through the story of the entire Old Testament in his own personal life. That's the way Matthew tells the story anyways. So that he's then baptized in the Jordan River. He then goes into the wilderness for 40, for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil, but he's faithful. And he overcomes and he does what Adam couldn't do. And he does what Abraham couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do, what Sarah couldn't do. And what the Israelites couldn't do, he does it. And he's faithful. And therefore, now the kingdom of God has come in and through Jesus. And of course, we'd say that's what the whole story was always pointing us towards, was, was the Jesus part of the story anyways. So this is kind of the goal of God dwelling among his people. So makes sense? All right, let's go ahead now. And we'll go to the fill in the blanks then. And we'll do point um, uh, A. Uh, one of the fundamental principles of the covenant. Okay, oh, uh, well, point A in your notes. Here we go. The purpose of redemption was so that God would dwell among his people. That's the fill in the blank. The purpose of redemption was that God would dwell among his people. And the reference is Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus 29, 44 through 46. If somebody wants to uh, look that up and read it. Exodus 29, 44 through 46. So the fill in the blank is that God would uh, dwell among his people. Thank I will much. consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. There you go. So the whole idea in Exodus is, this temple or the tabernacle and what's the goal of the tabernacle that i'm going to dwell among you and if i can make a side note if you don't mind and i hope you don't mind but i'm gonna do it anyways the issue of israel palestine and all that stuff and you guys know that i'm involved in, in a lot of the conversations with that and written a couple books on that and what have you this is what i think is so often missing from the conversation and what I mean by that is, is people say, God made a promise to give Israel this land, and therefore this land belongs to Israel. That's just, that's one side of the argument. God give, gave them a promise, the promise abides, it's theirs. There's another side that says, well, that says, well, even if that's true, 
and Israel comes back into the land, they still have to do justice in the land. And they're not doing justice all the time. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, Israel has legitimate security needs. There's no questioning that. But there's another view that says, no, the purpose of the land was because that's where God was going to dwell. It wasn't just this blank slate. You know what? I'm going to take all the people of the world. and I'm going to make one of you guys my favorite ones. Everybody else, bummer for you, but I'm going to bless this one people. And I'm going to give them this land. No, the purpose of the land was so that I could dwell among you. And then when I dwell among you, you go make me known to everybody else and it'll be great. But when Israel doesn't obey and they end up blaspheming God's name, that's the whole point. When you don't obey the covenant, you make God look bad. And God's like, well, I got I to gotta stick up for myself now because you guys are blaspheming my name. So I'm booting you out lest they think that their God just condones evil. And then the question is, when God brings them back, why is he bringing them back? So he can dwell among them. And the question then becomes, is Jesus and thereby the spirit dwelling within us the fulfillment of that promise? And the, the point of this was always putting to, towards the temple, but the temple now becomes Jesus and not a building. And then Jesus gives the spirit to dwell within us. And therefore, wherever we go, wherever we go by definition, we take the temple presence of God with us and the land now expands. It's no longer just this land because it was that land because God built a tabernacle there and then later a temple there and dwelt there. That was the purpose of the land. And then of course the people were going to be blessed and then they would bless all the nations as well. But now that Jesus has come and the spirits indwelling us, go you therefore to the nations. And I think that's why Paul says in Romans 4.13 that Abraham was the inheritor of the whole world or whole earth. I think this is, I think the key issue that as the missing in the conversation that is, why did God give them the land? And that question is not asked. And when you answer it, he gave them the land because that's, he was going to dwell among them there. Okay. Now let's discuss whether that becomes an eternal promise, an abiding promise that the land can't change or whether that promise changes as it's fulfilled and expanded. Anthony, you going to say something? I was, I was oh, going to say, go I was just going to say, until then, I, I always ask this question. I still don't even know what the answer is. Okay. How important is Israel, the, the land there? I always hear, yeah, we're supposed to stand up for them because they're the blessed ones. So we should stand up for Israel all the time. So how important is Israel or is it even really that important now? Yes. Okay. So the, the problem with answering that, so let me, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm going to give a caveat. Great question. First. Yeah. The problem with answering the question is that you have to be very careful of anti-Semitism because it's a reality. As soon as you say, okay, Israel doesn't matter at all, then people take that and become abusive towards, towards Jewish people. It's just a reality. In regards to that, by the way, the church has been the number one pro proponent of anti-Semitism historically. Oh, uh, so the podcast that's going to be aired next Tuesday, we talk about this a lot. So you, you'll definitely want to check into the podcast next Tuesday with uh, Dr. Bruce Fisk. We talk about this a lot because if the gospel of Matthew is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, then what does that mean about the land and the, the modern day Jewish people? So that's the first caveat there. The second caveat will be Israel is no different than the nations then, in my opinion. All nations are, are equal and all people are equal now because the point of it is Jesus redefines who, who, this, who the descendants of Abraham are. He says, my mother, my brother, my sister are those 
who do the will of my father who is in heaven. John the Baptist begins his ministry in Luke 3 by saying, don't say you have Abraham as your father because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. So it's through identification of Jesus, through faith in Jesus, that the people of God are now defined. And they're no longer a nation specifically, but uh, people from all nations. I had a conversation because uh, with a Jewish uh, writer not almost two years ago now, and she's like, okay, I don't understand what you're saying, because she was Jewish. And she's like, I'm trying to understand what you evangelicals believe. She goes, well, where does that leave us Jews? And I said, it leaves you in the same place it leaves everybody else. There's no distinction any longer. Next thing I would say would be, it, the Jewish people are at the same place as everybody else. If you want to be blessed by God, Revelation 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 25 says, you bless God's people. When, when did I give you a cup of, of, of water to drink? And when did I visit you when you were in prison? Whenever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And these brothers of mine in the gospel of Matthew are clearly Christians. They're followers of Jesus. The, the least of these is his way of referring to the poor and the outcasts and those who are following him. So the favoritism then will go to God's people, but not because we're a nation. We're, we're not a nation at all. We're distinct from the, from the nations are made up of, of all nations. So does that help a little bit? Yeah. 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 Rob, I, I did have a comment. Cool, um, first of all, a few weeks back, I mentioned the root, the axe lies at the root. And I mentioned the fact that and I, I didn't say this part, but I've had conversations with evangelicals who see Israel as that root and they can do yes. no wrong. And they're already in, so to speak, you know, in yes. by, by virtue of them being Jewish. So that's a fault. But secondary to that, um, I think we have to be real careful when we start calling accountability anti or anti-semitism because we're all accountable as human beings before the lord and as a believer my greatest desire would be for the jews to come to faith but how do we walk that tightrope of accountability before it starts being labeled anti-zionism and now we're in a completely different tangent which was never where i want to start to go lastly from from what i've read and from what i understand zionism in its current form is desiring a third temple and if you think about what you just covered, that is completely antagonistic to where we're hoping to get with the Lord in our presence. I mean, he's in our presence. We don't yeah. need the third temple. So just those factors come up for me, and, and they're problematic. And when I have these discussions, it's amazing how much people don't want to hear another side of it. They're locked in to know you're wrong and you're That's missing, right. based largely apart onto the Left Behind series and all that other stuff that you've talked about. I understand, and I, and I agree with uh, essentially everything that you said there. I just still think we need to be careful about anti-Semitism because it is real and it has been real. That is part of Christian history. Martin Luther was really bad, by the way, right? And not him alone. We were silent during the Holocaust. We shouldn't have been silent. And the reality is that the people of the Jewish people have legitimate security needs because they're in the middle of surrounding nations, many of whom want to obliterate them. That, that's legitimate. Now, you might say, well, that's because they're oppressing the Palestinians. And I think that is a part of it. And that's and that is, even if you believe that you should bless the Jewish people, we have to be careful because in our efforts to bless the Jewish people, we're actually encouraging them to do bad things. We're, we're condoning their oppression of the Palestinian people because we make the Palestinians the bad guys and the Jews the good guys. And the United States government allows Israel to get away with anything they want for all kinds of really bad political reasons because we need an ally in the Middle East. That's why we do what we do with Saudi Arabia and things like that also. So I think there's a lot of extrapolations on this that kind of lead to a lot of problematic things there. 
And uh, and then, you know, back to what Brother Marcus was saying about Ukraine, the Palestinians were Christians. I mean, you know, 20 percent of Palestinians at one time were Christians. And now they've all had to flee because of the oppression. Palestine, the Christians can get out. The Muslims can't. And so now you're, you're looking at less than two percent of Palestinians that are even Christian. Uh, so that's another issue. So, John, you had another comment or a thought? I think it's Romans chapter nine. Is that where it's talked about yes. or, or wherever yes. it is, it's talked about yep. Jews being part of the kingdom of God or they're they're all I wish I could if I had it in front 11, of me and yeah. refresh myself. It was I remember yeah. studying Romans and we got to chapter nine. I remember it was like all all Jews were going to be saved. Okay, so for, all Israel will be for, saved. And Ro- all Israel would Romans be saved. 11, is it, Romans 9 through 11 is, is the whole issue. And this is the passage for the debate of Zionism. And it's Romans 9 through 11. And the question of what does the word Israel mean? And that, this is an important point. When you see a word, you have, to, you have to go, what does that word mean? So if I say Israel, you all might think of one particular thing, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We're talking about the Bible. You're talking about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But then you study the Bible and you realize, actually, they were only the nation of Israel for a little while. And then after that, Israel came to be in the northern kingdom only. The southern kingdom was Judah because they divided. So Israel actually came to be known as Samaria. That's two meanings of Israel. A third meaning of Israel is actually Jacob's name, an individual person named Israel. Jacob wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. There's the third meaning. Now the word Israel in the Bible has three meanings. And then a fourth meaning of Israel is the people of God in the New Testament. And that's obviously a debate whether or not the word Israel is ever applied to the church. But Romans 9, 6, you know, not all Israel are Israel, Paul says. And in one verse, Romans 9, 6, he uses the word Israel two different ways. So when you see the word Israel, Romans 11, I think it's 24 through 27, something like that. And it says all Israel will be saved. You say, well, what does Israel mean? And one view of Romans 11 would be that all Israel will be saved means all Israel, meaning all Jews and Gentile converts together, all of us. I, I'm totally fine with that. The second view would say, no, all, all Israel, the nation of Israel, ethnic Jews. That's the Zionist claim that, that Israel comes in at the end times there. And I'd say this, some of you guys know many people who are Jewish people and they're Christians. Guess what? All Israel is being saved. But when they get saved, they become followers of jesus does that i guess i think of uh, god's covenant with abraham in Mm -hmm. genesis 12 so in that um is like uh, make you a great nation so that would encompass all people right i mean yes yeah genesis 12 3 says and then you all the nations of the earth will be blessed yeah, the purpose yeah. of calling Israel was so that Israel could be a blessing to the nations. God calls Abraham so that he can be a blessing and God could bless him. And then the nations would come in. We're going to read a verse on, on that in a minute. And then all the nations would get blessed, but they don't obey. Israel doesn't obey. The Jewish people don't obey. God kicks him out. God promises he's going to fulfill it anyways. He does through Jesus. And then through Jesus, he sends the people of God out to the nations and says, now go and be a blessing. And that's kind of the point I want to make. And that is being a Christian is a missional call. It's not a call for yourself. It's you were not saved for your own well-being. Sorry, folks, get over it. That's simply not the way it works. That's American thing of us individualism. 
God saved us, Roman, 1 Peter 2, 9 says, so that you may proclaim his excellencies. That's why we were saved. Well, so that God says, hey, I hear the cry of the oppressed. Moses, get over here. I hear the cry of the oppressed. Anthony, get over here. Sandy, get over here. Anna, get over here. He's calling us to be the means through which he does the work of building his kingdom. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just curious. You make a good point that that's kind of the American church. What, it, what, do you, what does it look like in other countries? I'm not enough of a scholar of, I do know a lot of countries have been influenced by American missionaries. So there's a lot of American theology going on. Mm-hmm. And I would say this, the fastest growing branch of Christianity is the charismatic movement and the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's flourishing in South America and Central America. It's flourishing mm-hmm. through Africa. And that theology that they hold to is a very pro-Israel. It's very Zionist, that Israel is God's chosen people. If we bless them, God will bless us. And if we're faithful and obedient, God's going to give us power and prosperity and wealth and all that. So that is a theology that's growing. But I don't know the theology of China, the Chinese Christian church and what it's like. I don't, and so it's hard, hard to answer for me to answer that question. So sorry. Yep. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Is so. your view that we are Israel? Mm-hmm. Yes, without question. I you're the temple. So. You're the children of Abraham. You're a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Just read First Peter. It's because the whole book of First Peter is about us being God's chosen people and fulfilling that task. And that God, God's been faithful to his promises. And my book, These Brothers of Mine, addresses a lot of it. And uh, Jazz, my book, These Brothers of Mine, addresses Genesis 12, the Genesis 12 passage and all that also. Let's kind of roll through the rest of this. How's that? Because I want to finish this up. And, and, and this is not like crucial, essential stuff here, but it's good. So here we go. The next points actually are relevant to what we've been discussing. So God's presence requires ethical holiness. The way I'd say it to kind of simplify it for tonight so we can make sure we finish everything is... If God dwells in us, and if where God dwells is a temple, then we have to become holy. How's that? If we don't finish everything tonight, we probably won't. That's kind of the whole point. If God dwells in us, and that makes us us a temple, then we need to be holy. So it's Leviticus 19, verse 2, be holy. That's the, the, the holiness code of Leviticus 19. And then letter B is, the result was that the nations would notice. And this is when this was the purpose of Israel's call. When Israel was called to be a holy nation, then the nations would notice. And this is key to the conversation that we're already having. So if somebody wants to read Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8. Them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a good, has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? There you go. Thank you. That's the idea. The idea. Deuteronomy 4 is introducing the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. So they're in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. So you have this passage in Deuteronomy 4 says, if you do these commandments, then guess what's going to happen? All the nations are going to go, look how great this nation is. 
and look how great their God is. And the nations would flow into Israel. This is kind of the Old Testament story. The nations would join Israel because they would be drawn in by how blessed that the people are and how great the nation is. They don't obey. Jesus comes in the story. He's faithful, sends the spirit amongst us, and then sends us to the nations. That's kind of the biblical story. Let me just kind of run through this. I really wanted to kind of get to Romans 12. I probably should just jump to Romans 12 anyways, because I know I get stuck in the middle of this stuff. Also, we won't finish it. But let me just kind of, I'm going to give you the fill in the blanks. And I'm going to go over it quickly. This is not essential information. It's kind of bonus information. For Israel, everything was divided into two categories. Everybody see where I'm at in the notes? Of holy and common. And another word for common was profane. And this is what makes it confusing. Because in English, profane means like corrupted and bad. But in biblical terminology, profane means not holy. That's all it means. There's holy, and then there's the common or the profane. So God and anything associated with God was by its very nature, holy. That's, that's the holiness, anything associated with God. Everything else was profane or common or ordinary. And I put it in the notes that profane has like a neutral meaning here. Now the common, so there's two categories. There's the profane, there's the holy and there's the profane. The category of the holy it never changes. It's holy. That's, that's all there is to it. The category of the common or the profane, letter E, or whatever letter that is for you guys, is divided into two categories. And the two categories are number one or letter A and B. Letter A is clean and letter B is unclean. So clean is the normal state of things and people. So we are by definition not innately holy. We don't come along as holy. God is. God and anything associated with him is holy. We're common. And our normal state of things is that we're clean, but we can become unclean because of pollution. So when you read the Old Testament laws, this is what's happening. It's saying, if you do this, touch a dead body, you become unclean. It's not a bad thing. It's not, it's not like you're bad. It's just that you're not clean. Now, the reason why this is significant was because only the holy could enter God's presence. So if we're unclean, we first have to become clean and then we can become holy. So the next line is only that which was clean could come into the presence of God. That's why God has all these laws on clean and unclean. It's like, okay, I'm holy and you're not. So let's make sure we make this distinction amongst us. Only the clean can come into God's presence. Now here's what sin does. Underneath the next line is sin and pollution does two things. It makes the holy, it makes the holy profane or common. So everything just kind of goes down a step. If sin were brought into it, it would profane or make common the holy. The second line is the clean becomes unclean. So if you're clean and you come into contact with somebody that's unclean, you become unclean. The sin and pollution, it corrupts the holy and makes it common and it corrupts the clean and makes it unclean. Now, one biblical anecdote. Whenever Jesus touched or came into contact with the unclean, they became clean. It's radically against the way everything works. Because the way it should have worked was Jesus should have become unclean. But instead, he not only doesn't become unclean, they actually became clean. Okay, now the next part of that is this. Sacrificial blood would provide cleansing. And so blood makes the unclean clean. Think about it. Everything goes up a step. So blood also makes the clean 
holy. And now you can enter God's presence. Well, the high priest can. That makes sense. And what happened, the whole Israelite society, so if you think of Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness, every single step away from God's presence became more and more and more common or profane. Every step towards God's presence becomes more and more holy or more and more clean and eventually becomes holy. That's why you always step upwards. Every step you get closer, you're going upwards. So if you're going to enter the outer court of the temple, you go up the stairs. If you're going to enter the inner courts, you go up the stairs again. If you're going to enter the holy place, you go up the stairs. You're always ascending upwards because it's symbolizing coming closer and closer and closer to that which is holy. So this is a, a large context for the Old Testament laws. Holiness and cleanness, on the notes it says this, were required to enter the presence of God. And since God's presence among Israel was a distinctive element of them as a people, and since their distinctiveness was to be their mission to the world, does that make sense to everyone? Their distinctiveness was to be their mission to the world. That's the Deuteronomy 4 passage that Andrew just read. When they did what they were supposed to do and became holy or remain clean, they would be a light in the nations and the nations would see how prosperous they are and how great their God is. Following the laws was their mission. It was missional. And when I say missional, I mean as a witness to the nations, as a testament to them. Then even their sacrificial system was missional. The whole idea of this was to bring the people to Israel or to Yahweh ultimately. Now, because the sacrificial system was fulfilled on the cross, the laws of clean and unclean uh, food, which symbolized Israel's distinctiveness from the nations, were also fulfilled. So we would say the sacrificial system was fulfilled in Jesus. No more cross. And as Anthony said earlier, no more temples. He's the temple. No question about it. It's Jesus fulfills the temple promises. That also means that the way of distinguishing between Israel and the nations, one of the primary ways was their food laws. And the answer is, oh, fulfilled by Jesus. So all foods are clean. And now we don't make distinctions and say the nations who live farther away from Yahweh, oh, they're unclean. No. They all become clean now. And now our job is to do what? To bring holiness to them. So the moral and spiritual cleanliness is still in force. That's why Paul quotes Leviticus 26 and 2 Corinthians 6, and he urges Christians to not compromise uh, their exclusive worship of Christ and their distinctiveness from unbelievers. Now, I was going to have you break into groups, but obviously we're out of time. So Roman, let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2, because this is the whole key. And then we'll move on next week to uh, talk about more, more justice. So if there's anything that we retain tonight, and that is God's goal was to dwell among his people. He's called us to be those people among, among whom he dwells. Our goal then is to be missional and to bring justice, justice to the nations. The means to which he does the work of building his kingdom is through us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Somebody want to read that? I got it. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm in the NRSV, the new life in Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a loving sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Note the sacrificial system is actually still in play. It's just changed. What's the difference? What's, what's supposed to be sacrificed now? 
the your system's life. been fulfilled. Of but our heart. Yeah. Your life. Your Us. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the, here's the key distinction. In Jesus, God also became the sacrifice. Or to say it differently, the priest becomes the sacrifice. Instead of the priest offering a sacrifice, the priest becomes the sacrifice. So when Jesus says, you're a royal priesthood, and for, or Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, 9, uh, that means we become the sacrifices. Offer, and this is not like, oh, this is like really good spiritual language. Oh, man, I feel so cool as a Christian now. I'm going to be. No, this is like literal stuff here, folks. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. This is what we do is take up your cross and follow me. And for many Christians, it will literally mean taking up your cross and literally mean dying on it. Next thing he says, oh, and don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if we had time, and maybe we'll do this at the beginning of next week if we want, we say, what does being conformed to the world mean? Because that's the key distinction. We, as the priests in God's kingdom, because we're not priests, we become the sacrifice, and it's us that we offer up. That's what love means. This is, this is the essence of love, right? Lay down your life for the sake of the other. And we do so by not being conformed to the world, but by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.